Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Nothing Impossible on News Radio 1120, KMOX. Michael and Travis with you getting powered up for this edition of Nothing Impossible. We are talking power and we're talking uh, investment. Power and money. Power and money. It's like a Wall Street <laughs> on here. And then we'll talk public transit. Power, money, and public transit. One oh, of these yeah. things is not like the other. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's let's break this down. First off, have, have you ever been in a situation where your phone's died and you need it? You're on 1%. You know, you have to get that uh, that lift ride real quickly because mm. uh, you have to get home and your phone dies. I've been there. Yeah, so have I, uh, especially doing out doing news stories. And so I'm especially interested in talking with Chris Reimer, not just because he's an awesome guy to talk with, but because his new company, his new product is Busa Tech. It's one of those uh, portable batteries that charges up your smartphone, but there's something special to this one. A portable power pack uh, that is being... Uh, Packaged right here in St. Louis and shipped out to homes all over the place. I was wondering how far you were going to take that alliteration there. <laughs> I was, it was ending soon. <laughs> and then we're going to go to the St. Louis Regional Chamber and check in with Andrew Smith. I think most of the time you hear him, it's about Hyperloop, especially yeah. of late. But He has talked a lot about Hyperloop, but this uh, time we're talking about a, a report uh, that the Chamber released on the state of the investment community in St. Louis. Yeah, so if you're a company that's uh, a startup, maybe you've moved here or you started here, but investment is what makes that community go round. And so how does St. Louis stack up? Or are some of our best and brightest companies going to have to look elsewhere for investment? And does that mean they might have to move? And then uh, we will also talk a little bit about public transit, the uh, new Metrolink opening in my neck of the woods, uh, Cortex. But unfortunately, I can't get there from my home neck of the woods, North St. Louis. Oh, but you have some thoughts on that. I do. On what the priority should be for the next expansion. Um, And we should also note some news that uh, has happened in St. Louis when it comes to one of our innovation districts. Uh, The Brookings Institute, again, recognizes they've already recognized Cortex. And now it's 39 North. Yeah, Yeah. the Plant Science District in Creve Corps. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I think it's always good, and, and we, I think we'll talk to Andrew about this as well. It's good when outside organizations uh, take a look at what's going on in St. Louis and give us that seal of approval. Uh, it's good for our own morale and, 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 and the camaraderie within the city, but it's also nice because other cities start looking at us and other startups start looking at us. Yeah, that, that's a lot to get to. Why don't we take a break? And jump right into and it. And we'll get right into it. We'll get charged up for Chris Reimer after this. Tech. I've got the power. Isn't that like a CNC music factory? <laughs> I've got the power. Uh, we can't, we don't have royalties on that song, so I can't sing anymore. But we have Chris Reimer on the phone. St. Louis social media, uh, I won't say guru because that's that's such a odds word, but dudes all over social media. Professional uh, would work. A prof- <laughs> social, well, how about that? Chris is so, very professional. Social media professional. professional. Uh, has dabbled in a lot of things throughout his career. Uh, we've we won't remember hold- Rizzo Tees. Uh, so I met him through people talking about Rizzo Tees. They said you have to meet this guy who used to be an accountant and now is selling T-shirts online. Uh, but now, Chris Reimer, you are doing Busa Tech, providing power to the world. Indeed. So Busa Tech is my new 
consumer tech products company with my first product being a power bank, a portable phone charger that uh, uh, in technical terms it has 10,000 milliamps of storage. What that means is for a you know, standard size iPhone 8, it'll charge it uh, from zero to 100 three and a half times. So it basically gives you even if you're a heavy user of your phone, it'll give you at least two full days of power uh, off the grid. You won't have to plug into a wall for at least two days. Nice. And now, you know, why this, Chris? Why this? I, and I'm sure, like, when you decided to do T-shirts, it was like, why T-shirts, Chris? But, like, why Power Bank? You know, I've been asking myself this ever <laughs> since I started the company. No. Uh, so, interesting question, because uh, in... in so in the case of T-shirts, it was really, you know, expressing myself via the message on the T-shirts. I mean, T-shirts are fashion, and this is a little bit different. This is a utility-type tool. This is a tool that people can use. And for me, uh, I, you know, if anyone's wondering, if anyone knows what I do for a living, I work as the Associate Director of New Media at Maryville University, and I have not left that job, and I don't believe <laughs> in that job. So full disclosure, I, I'm I'm getting this question. I'm still here. <laughs> but in my in my job here, you know, running around doing all of our social media, I own a professional or, or a work phone and a personal phone. You know, I became pretty addicted to using power banks, to, to basically plugging into a portable phone charger at all times in order to basically stave off zero percent. Uh, when I'm, especially if I'm here at work for a long time, like for instance, in three weeks, the students are coming back. We're going to have move-in. I'll be here all day and all night, and I have to have my phones, both of them, on the entire time. And so, you know, similar to the T-shirts, when I once purchased some funny T-shirts online and I received them and a light bulb didn't necessarily go off over my head, it slightly flickered and it took a while to come on. But, oh, I have a lot of interesting thoughts. I could turn these into T-shirts. It was similar here. I just thought this is a product that I use constantly. So... I'd like to try to create one or find one or find a manufacturer who can make one that has everything that I'm looking for in a power bank. And so uh, starting last August, it just kind of became uh, an obsession of mine to get something put together that was going to be high quality, you know, and knowing that I was going to be selling it probably primarily to everyone I know at first, <laughs> I really wanted it. I wanted it to be, you know, of a high enough quality that I could be proud of it. So that's kind of how it started. What is the difference with the BUSA? You know, I have a, power stick that i bought like probably seven years ago and the you know plug is loose and it it doesn't necessarily work uh, for more than half a charge at this point so what's the benefit with busa i can already see that the the form factor is different it's it looks like it's shaped almost like a phone means it'd be probably a lot easier for me to put in my pocket when i'm you know out on the go at a news story or something there's definitely that so there's five things that i've had a hard time finding in a single power bank until we created this one, me and my, my special friends in China now. So uh, first of all, it is, it's, it's kind of beautiful. It's a good looking power bank. It does have a nice form factor. There's no like, there's no hard edges. So it feels really good in your hand. Uh, it's also pretty lightweight. So it's about 200 grams. Uh, it, it has a, an extra port on top of it. It has a USB-C port. And so USB-C is the next generation of USB and it's used by, uh, primarily right now by Android phones. I think Apple will eventually switch to it, but uh, that can be really, really helpful if you have an Android phone. It also has what's called pass-through charging. This is not something that I use personally, but I've had a lot of customers say that they love this, and so I'm glad that 
BUSA has it. So basically, when you, you can plug your BUSA into the wall in order to charge the power bank itself, but then you can plug a phone into the power bank. And so the power bank will provide power to the phone while it's grabbing power from the wall. I guess that's good if you're on you're traveling and you just want to bring one wall plug. You can charge the power bank and a phone at the same time. And then the last thing, and I think a lot of listeners will relate to this. So when you plug a phone in to your Boosa power bank, it turns itself on. It just starts charging immediately. You have to remember to press a button in order to start the charging. And of course, what it, probably at least half of your listeners can relate to is anytime you've had one of these things and you plug in and you forget to hit the button and you return later or the next morning, your phone hasn't charged a bit. So that, in my opinion, is a design flaw that I'm just not going to have on one of my power banks. So um, those things together, I think, have created a pretty unique product. It is clear that I'm no inventor here. There are many of these things available uh, on Amazon and elsewhere, but I'm selling mine exclusively on BoostedTech.com, and I, so far, so good. People have really responded positively to it, and you know, I haven't started doing any paid ads or anything like that yet. So once that happens, I'm sure hopefully you know, sales will, uh, will take off. But so far, things are going great. Now, you said this started last August. Um, without going into a, a long explanation, what was that process like? It's almost a year now from I want to do this to delivering them to market. What, what were some of the roadblocks? What did you learn? What was this process like? Yeah, so... I will try to keep it short. So, you know, the, the, I'll try. It was a whole year. But the, for me at first, the way, you know, I had to learn more about, of course, I've been using power banks, but I had to learn more about them, how they're built, what I personally like and dislike. So I had to experience power banks. So I purchased a bunch. I purchased a bunch off Amazon, and then I started making uh, relationships with manufacturers, and I was having them send me examples of what they can make. And so I was learning really quickly that not all manufacturers are created equal. And I was just experiencing, you know, features that I thought were silly. Like a lot of them put this little flashlight on the top and it's super weak. I mean, it can barely light up your hand if your hand's in front of it. When you have a cell phone that has a blindingly bright flashlight right, on right. it. So I was like, okay. Yeah, plus, Chris, that. when you accidentally leave that flashlight on, like I have on that stupid power stick, it yeah. drains it, so then when you need it to charge your phone, there's no battery left. Yeah, I mean, that's not fun at all. I live to, <laughs> I'm not, I live to have fun. That's not fun at all. So, <laughs> so for, first, for me, it was a matter of just kind of immersing myself in it and learning, asking manufacturers lots of dumb questions, with uh, you know receiving what they're what they can make and realizing oh uh, this power bank that you said would charge three times really only charged it once I'm thinking you didn't really build this correctly you know that kind of thing so for me then the next step was obviously to create like a way to market these now my original plan was to sell exclusively on Amazon I thought because everyone lots of people should say not everyone but lots of people buy things on Amazon and I thought even with all the competition on there, uh, Amazon is the place I have to be. And then I won't have to, you know, package things myself and all this. So that didn't exactly work out. And it is a long story. But uh, the summary of it is after being approved twice by Amazon, a double approval process to be able to sell these power banks on Amazon and having shipped 
all of my power banks to Amazon and then having them disperse them throughout their warehouses all over the country, they quickly changed the rules on power banks. They created what's called a restricted category and I was not grandfathered in. And so they refused to put them up for sale. And so, uh, that really bummed me out. And I told them that they should probably grandfather me in since these rules happened after I became, you know, or I should say almost became an Amazon seller and I couldn't get anyone to listen to me. And kind of a funny story is, uh, I was trying to finally talking with someone stateside, you know, here about my problem at Amazon. And they said, you know, and do one, two, three, four, and five. And then, you know, send an email to Jeff. <laughs> and I said, Jeff who? Yeah. And they said, Jeff Bezos. Jeff at Amazon.com. I was like, okay, why not? What's his email address? And they said, Jeff at Amazon.com. And I, I was like, it. well, of course, I should have guessed that. And um, nothing happened. Jeff did not respond. And then I decided this is not going to work. My Amazon career is over before it began. And I'm going to I'm going to sell these myself. I'm going to build a website. So I scratched my first website, built a second one on Shopify, and I do uh, fulfill the orders myself. So you do all the really, you do all the fulfillment yourself. So an order comes in, and it's it's Chris's warehouse. Yes. Oh so wow! I didn't I, know that. Yeah, I pack and ship them myself, and you know that. Maybe that'll change in the future if the orders go crazy or I'll, you know, make my kids do it or something. Oh, know, good we'll, summer job for we'll, the kids. Yeah. <laughs> summer job, you know, night job while they're in grade school, whatever, <laughs> whatever it takes. Right. But uh, so it's funny. So my website, finally, I soft debuted it on June 20th. Uh, hadn't really had the time or the nerve to write that initial social media post where I was going to get everyone to come to the site, you know. So June 20th, it goes up. And June 21st, Amazon writes to me and says, hey, you've been newly approved to sell PowerPoint. Oh, no. Uh, they Finally, their escalation team. So the thing with them, their escalation team takes a full 30 days to get anything done. So it's really not escalating. It's kind of, I don't know. They did, it, things didn't quite work out for me there. So I got that email and I thought, you know what? Maybe the future, but I, I don't need you guys right now. I'm going to do this myself. And so I'm actually excited to be able to do it myself. I have my own website. I can do whatever I want with it. I can blog on it. I can, you know, make my own offers on it, whatever the case is. So things are going well so far. And Amazon, though, they're going to have to beg to get me to come on there, I guess. <laughs> so I guess this is what Chris Reimer's living room probably sounds like when those orders come in. <laughs> Ripping the tape and taping up the packages. <laughs> Okay, so that's an excellent uh, soundbite. And what's really funny is, like, I'll do that in the morning, you know, like out in the dining room. And my wife will hear it, you know, and she's not, that's not a great sound. Like, that's not, that doesn't sound like a harp to me or something, you know, it's not right. a great sound. But um, if she complains, I'll be like, this is the sound of money. And you just do it. And it's like, go back to sleep because <laughs> every time you hear this, sound of it, money. Means, it means money. And so, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I do have a tape gun and I'm, um, I'm getting better at using it. I was really a mess at first, but, uh, I'm getting to be an old pro at it now. So, uh, you know, so many, this is, this is a side hustle. Like we talk about side hustles from time to time, people keeping their day job, they're, they're nine to five, or when students come back, they're nine to nine. And <laughs> if not later, uh, have you always been a side hustle type person, Chris? I would say no. No. I would say, okay. that, I, I would say that yeah, it comes and goes, you know. So, uh, you know, entrepreneurism is not something that, like, is natural to me. It doesn't run through my veins. It, it's not something 
I, I was introduced to it at an early age. Uh, my grandfather owned, started a window manufacturing company in 1949. And so, you know, in, growing up in the seventies, my grandma, you know, babysitting me, we'd go to the factory in the office and I was able to see it in action, you know, and it, it was inspiring to me. Uh, I lived near a golf course when I was a kid. I used to go out and search for golf balls that had been lost and then sell them back to the golfers. So I did that and was able to make some money, but I've always had a job. So I've never supported myself in full via an entrepreneurial venture. So, you know, as you said, the, the term of the decade, I think is side hustle. And it's, it's kind of a fun thing because I can actually learn a lot about something. I can learn something about my craft, which is marketing and social media and communication. And, you know, here, I, I mean, I can do it without Maryville batting an eye or objecting. It's interesting when employers sometimes object to side hustles. Sometimes it's because they don't want the people to be freelancing when they could be bringing in business, you know, to the to the company where they work that I can, I can kind of understand that. I mean, here it's education. I'm selling power banks on the side, so they're not terribly related, but it, it is something where I feel like it's trying something new. It was, you know, it was an itch. I had to scratch, I guess it was an idea that I just felt like I really want to try to execute on this, but no, there's been years and years in a row. Like I closed down Rizzo teeth in December of 2014 and had really no side hustle besides the occasional speech here and there until basically last August. So, I mean, I took a few years off, let's put it that way. Now, now, now I'm, I'm going to disagree with you there, Chris, because in the midst of, of somewhere after 2014, you became an author and you wanted you wrote a book. Like, that's that's a pretty good side hustle right there, too. You know, I forget about that book. <laughs> How do you forget so about you that book? That. So, <laughs> so I wrote, so it's funny. So I wrote and Happy Work is available on Amazon, correct? <laughs> so you do have an Amazon career. <laughs> So, okay, so uh, this is very hard to talk about because, you know, my book is available on Amazon, and I definitely recommend listeners to go check out Happy Work there. I also, ironically, buy all my shipping supplies on Amazon for uh, <laughs> Musa, So, and I'm a Prime member, and all my photos go up to Amazon, uh, you know, in the cloud, and so on and so on. So, Je you know, Jeff and I are not on an email basis, but I do buy a lot of stuff from them. But... Um, I did write a book and that happened. When did I finish that? So I finished that in February of 2014 and then it came out a year later. Yeah. And I never, I actually never considered that a business in the sense of it being a side hustle. That was just a message I really wanted to get out to the world. And it was fun and terrifying at the same time to try to write a book and, you know, just embrace the one-star reviews that you may eventually get. So it's a scare, you know, it, it was like, it, I'm not much of a creative person, not much of an artist, but that, that was the most creative I've ever been. So it was a fun, it was a fun venture, no doubt. Well, I'm always seeing five-star reviews on the Busa Tech website. You know, and I can tightly control those, of course. So if you get out of hand on the website, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll mark those for review and then review them myself. So we have to be careful. Well, Chris, uh, how can people learn more about Busa Tech or even go and find a find one themselves? So I think that your listeners should go to BusaTech.com. It's B-O-O-S-A-T-E-C-H.com. Uh, and I have a single product available for sale right now. You get to choose dark gray or white. But I'll have future products uh, coming out 
most definitely by Christmas season because I'm hoping that a good fun time for uh, uh, do you still have the packing tape sound? You could like <laughs> insert turn out. It could be fun time for money, and I'll have to stack up stock up on packing tape. So check out boostatech.com and let me know what you let me know what you think. Well, good yeah. deal, Chris Reimer. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to chat with you about uh, passion, side hustle, or anything else related to entrepreneurship. Thank you so much, Andrew Smith, who is. Ironically enough, the Vice President of Innovation and Entrepreneurialism for the St. Louis Regional Chamber. Thank you so much for calling in, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, it all matches up. See, we want to do a show about innovation and entrepreneurship. We get somebody at the chamber involved in it. How does, how does that happen? It's like it's like the show is meant to draw people together. Uh, Andrew, you guys just released uh, it's the St. Louis Regional Chamber's uh, 2017 Investment Capital Report. Big title. Uh, boil it down uh, for us real quick. Yeah, so so this is the chamber's um, primary research document, I would say, on the state of venture capital investment in the St. Louis region. And you know, we're looking at everything from historical trends. You know, are we are we getting better? Um, are we maintaining? Are we getting worse in terms of the total dollars coming in? To a sector analysis, what strengths do we have? Um, you know, what areas are really receiving the most investment? Um, comparison with other Midwestern cities, comparison against national competition, um, and then ultimately, you know, what what do we think the future holds for the innovation ecosystem in St. Louis? So I guess to go through this, Andrew, unpack it. First off, who are these? Who did you measure? What kind of companies when we talk about venture capital? Um, how small of a startup to how big of a company? And are we talking life sciences, straight technology? What kind of uh, businesses are we also talking about here? Right. So most of the data that we um, that we were able to use came from uh, PitchBook um, and Crunchbase. So we're looking at you know true venture investments coming from accredited venture investors. Um, we're also able to pull data on angel investors, and that's included in the numbers. And we did not, uh, you know, we really didn't exclude any category. We were looking at, you know, everything from cybersecurity and fintech to um, biosciences, which, you know, as you can see in the report, uh, represents a huge percentage of the total investment dollars in St. Louis. Now, looking at some, just some of the, the charts that are here and some of the data, that exists. Uh, it says in 2015, about half the deals were about $350,000. And then in 2017, the average was about one $1 million of an, a venture deal. Is that because so much has been going into follow on to keep some of these 2015 ventures, uh, you know, growing and scaling? Or is this uh, just larger dollar amounts going in earlier? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question, Travis. Um, and I, I hope that the answer is that it's more money going in to support the, 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 the bets that have already been made. And I suspect that that's a large part of the explanation. That being said, um, we also see that there's a broader national trend where invent, venture investors in general are, are starting to come in later stage. Um, and, you know, that could be, um, because there's a little bit of a decreased appetite for, for risk. Which is a funny thing to talk about when you're talking about venture investing. It's all risky, right? Um, but a lot of investors around the country are now looking at, you know, post-revenue um, companies, um, you know, companies that meet a certain revenue, monthly revenue threshold. Um, and we've seen some of that in the St. Louis market as well. When we look at some of the other markets that St. Louis competes against uh, in the Midwest, especially, I think people's 
their minds might go to Denver first. Uh, Chicago's had some large startups and tech companies come out of there as well. Um, but in the report, you even note that uh, like so many things, when you parse data, there are different ways to crunch it. And so depending on how you gauge it, St. Louis may lag or St. Louis may compare favorably, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the overall takeaway, you know, that I got anyway from the numbers is that if we're looking at, if we're comparing St. Louis to other Midwestern cities, we do really, really well. I mean, you know, you can slice and dice the data any number of ways. In any way that you slice and dice it, we're going to be in the top, you know, three, four or five cities in the Midwest. And that's a really good thing. That's the result of, you know, more than a decade of work. Um, you know, that people have put in, entrepreneurs, investors, and ecosystem support organizations to get us there. When you start to expand the lens, you know, and kind of go from, uh, you know, like AAA to the, to, to, to the majors, you know, I mean, it, 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 the competition is much more intense, right? I mean, you're competing in San Francisco, Boston, um, you know, Denver, Austin, New York. And, you know, at that level, we're we still have some work to do in order to really get to um, a level where I'd say we're punching at our weight. We probably need to double the amount of venture capital coming in within the next five to seven years. Now, where does that come from? Does that come from finding more avenues for St. Louis companies to tap into Boston capital, San Francisco capital, Colorado capital? Uh, Does it come from convincing more St. Louisans to uh, who have the means to invest to get off the sidelines and to uh, maybe invest in companies as opposed to philanthropic measures. Uh, does that mean more exits, uh, more St. Louis startups having so much success that they then have the money to make investments themselves, or maybe it's all of the above? Yeah, to a certain extent, it's all of the above. But um, I think when you really start to dig into the numbers, um, you know, you can pretty quickly reach a conclusion that it's going to be hard for us to scrape another 350 million off the sidelines in St. Louis. Like, you know, we've got a lot of wealth in this community. I think um, Michael Gallagher at, um, at Accenture told me that research says that St. Louis is the number three metro in the country for, for private wealth management, right? So we've got a lot, a lot of money here, a lot of old money. That being said, I don't know that you can necessarily count on on doubling the amount of um, local capital coming in. So it really is going to be a, a matter of our startups being successful enough that they that they begin to attract significant capital from places like New York, San Francisco, Boston, Denver, and other VC hubs. What about that idea of exits, though? You know, we uh, I saw in the report that Confluence uh, Life Science was mentioned uh, with their their nice exit last year, uh, but it seems like a lot of capital is still tied up in startups, either the bioscience space that requires a lot of capital to get, you know, before you get to a point of exit or commercialization, uh, or in some of our startups uh, that haven't yet had had an exit, uh, a large exit yet. What what is going to be that tipping point for us? Yeah, Travis, again, you kind of hit the nail on the head. We have laid down, um, you know, over a billion dollars in bets on startups uh, over the last four or five years. Um, And that's a lot of money, right? Um, We're now at a point, I believe, as an ecosystem where, you know, we can go in one of two directions. The direction we all want to go in and the one that I frankly think is most likely is that some of our um, startups that have received funding during that time period will start to really scale up, will continue to raise capital, or will have exit events, liquidity events of some kind. Yeah. If that happens, you've got very wealthy entrepreneurs and you've got very wealthy investors 
who get the bug. And what we've seen over and over again in all of the data is that they are far more likely to reinvest. Well, if we That's use the if, best case scenario, if the we worst use, case. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, no, Travis. I was going to say if we if we use an answers.com as an example, right? And what David yeah. Crandish has done, and what Tom Hillman has done, is uh, taking some of the the proceeds from that exit and creating uh, Lewis and Clark Ventures, and what uh, David has done by creating his new AI company, as well as being an investor himself. Like that is a that that's a sample size of one. I understand, but we need more of those, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, yeah, it's an N equals one study, but I think it's very <laughs> typical. Yeah. I mean, that that's what entrepreneurs do, right? We don't, you know, entrepreneurs don't, don't you know, start a company, um, have it succeed, make a boatload of cash, and then, you know, go decide to live on an island somewhere. Don't get into entrepreneurship for that. You get into it because you love creating value. You love changing the world. You love to do something completely different. Um, and success fuels success. <laughs> So we see that over and over in other ecosystems. And I think we're at a point where it, um, you know, it should start happening here. Andrew, uh, since the last time we've talked, uh, there's a new governor. There's been a lot that's happened in Jefferson City. And we've checked in with you about the status of the Missouri Technology Corporation and some of that funding, which, you know, goes to, to everything from T-Rex to Arch Grants to direct matching investments in companies. What is the status of some sort of innovation support from the state of Missouri? How, how receptive do you find the governor? And uh, in this report, how essential is it that the state be involved somehow? So... In the report, you know, we, we, we directly address that. Um, and the, the, the approach that, you know, that the chamber takes on this is there are two things that are really important here. The state needs to have meaningful um, dollars um, contributed, um, and the state has to have consistency in whatever program they're using to do it. Personally, you know, I, I think the MTC is, is, has had phenomenal success. I think we need to see funding levels restored um, to it. Um, but if there's another mechanism for getting that kind of money into the ecosystem, you know, we would certainly be open to it. And that's why we talk about the Missouri Venture Fund, which was one of the concepts that come out of um, uh, the last governor's innovation task force. Um, one of the biggest problems that, you know, that we see with the current state of affairs in Missouri is that there's, there is no consistency at all, right? So every year, we have to go back to the legislature and beg for, you know, frankly, what amounts to a fairly small amount of money in the big scheme of things. Um, you know, historically, I think the, the funding level for MTC has been, you know, anywhere from like $8 million to it got, it got as high as $18 million, right? Mm -hmm. Well, just look at the total number, uh, the total dollars coming into St. Louis in any given year, and you realize that's a very, very small fraction of it. I'm not saying that to minimize its importance. It's very, very important because they can support the ecosystem players um, that help the entrepreneurs. And a lot of that money is, it serves to validate um, concepts and validate um, some of the startups. But, you know, we really have got to, we've got to aim higher, in my opinion, as a state. We've got to be talking about, you know, how do we get, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into innovation activity? And the other states are doing it, right? Ohio, Texas, Tennessee. You know, they've all committed significant capital to this, and it's created an environment where entrepreneurs and investors can predict what's going to happen um, and feel comfortable making long-term plans. 
Well, Andrew, we, we have seen over the last probably five to seven years the democratization of innovation and in that it's not just happening in the, in the San Francisco's and Boston's and Cambridge's of the world, but it is happening in the Ohio's and the Missouri's and whatnot. Is Missouri, specifically St. Louis, doing enough to keep pace with its peer cities that are also, I won't call it jumping on this bandwagon, but putting all their eggs into the innovation basket. It's like a few years ago, I saw news articles in Tennessee that were like, oh my gosh, St. Louis has this Arch Grants thing. They're trying to steal our startups. But now everybody's kind of onto it. Everybody's got these kinds of programs. So yeah, what is St. Louis doing to continue to be a step ahead? Yeah, I, again, I think these are these are great questions. And you know, I, the reality is nobody owns um, you know innovation. Nobody owns... Um, an exclusive on, on entrepreneurships and startup activity. Every city has figured this out. Every region has figured this out, that it's important. The advantage that St. Louis has is that we now have a little bit of a track record that we can point to. And we have some assets that have um, you know, really matured um, nicely over time. And I'm thinking about things like T-Rex and, and Cortex. Cortex is the national model for an innovation district. You know, we, we at the chamber, we get calls on a weekly basis from chambers in other cities wanting to know about Cortex and how can, you know, how can they replicate what's happened there? And I mean, frankly, the, the short answer we give them is start now and we'll talk to you in about 10 years. <laughs> like, it, it takes a while. Um, so I think those are all really strong advantages that St. Louis has. Um, ultimately, and again, this is something that we cover in the report, the entrepreneurs themselves are the ones who are going to make the difference on this. The companies that have received funding over the last 10 years, have to be successful. They've got to scale. Uh, they've got to get to exits or liquidity events of some kind. They've got to be able to return money to investors. That's what's going to make the difference. That's a that's a perfect bow for this conversation. Thank you so much, Andrew, because it is about the entrepreneurs who have, people have taken bets on delivering on those on those bets that have been made. Absolutely. And I'm optimistic. I think we've got some great, great opportunities right now in the system. Andrew, if people want to dig into this report, all 16 pages of it, where should they go to find it? They can go to the Chamber's website, All right, www.stlregionalchamber.com. Andrew Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. I'd like to welcome you all to the grand opening of the Cortex Metrolink station at Shoto Greenway. To make this event even more exciting, today marks the 25th anniversary of the opening of Metrolink light rail system here in the city of St. Louis. Travis, did you take the new line to work at I all did. this week? I, so I was, uh, I felt very uh, techy. I jumped on my electric bike and rode my electric bike down to uh, the metro station that is near the new Enterprise Center, not the uh, Scott Trade Center. Mm. Uh, hopped on the Metrolink and rode it into Cortex. Uh, got off the train at 10.05, just in time to see all the uh, hoopla happening with the opening of the new line. And how busy was the station? How big of an impact do you think this will have for, especially the employees in that district? And you know what? Every time I go to Cortex, it's a search for parking. This should hopefully help alleviate that, too. I would hope so, but you know, we still have to acknowledge the fact that St. Louis is a car-based city. Like, we just don't 
there will be some easement that will happen uh, with, from parking with the new metro stop there in Cortex, but I don't know if it's going to have this big of an impact that we're that we're thinking. But what I will say is it, it is necessary because it does connect Cortex more directly to the downtown area, connects it to uh, the airport real mm-hmm. easily. So it's great for people to get in and out. And it is there are a lot of employees that can take it. The question is, will they? Now there's a study happening in the city of St. Louis for north-south metro link. St. Louis County, meantime, is studying uh, three different alignments of its own that are not part of the city's plan. What do you think about that? What should be next for mass transit in St. Louis? Well, we have to go north-south. Uh, you know, I, I use the analogy of baseball that if if I, this is a 25th anniversary of the Metro Link being open and they've gone 0 for 38 on a north-south line, right? They have 38 st- stations now. None of them are a north-south uh, in the city line. So we, I think that has to be a priority. I mean, we will see development along those lines. We've already seen it along the red and blue line here that do exist. Uh, but it also would speak volumes to those communities that are in the north of St. Louis, that they are connecting it through public transit. And in St. Louis, uh, some of the criticism that people might have of the Metrolink is that it's not used as widely as maybe some other cities, but in St. Louis, we haven't necessarily built it into the neighborhoods where people who would use it as opposed to driving a car or who don't even have cars now and are looking for, they take, you had mentioned earlier in the week, two or three buses to get to work. They would take Metrolink, even if uh, the people who live in a car-centric community that Metrolink currently goes through don't. Well, I think it is, yeah, supply and demand. Like there is a po- There's a population of people in North St. Louis that uh, that do rely on public transit, and they're taking buses right now. Uh, there are those that, uh, let's say they have... Um, transportation uh, scarcity or whatever we want to call it, right? Insecurity. Maybe their cars may not be reliable. Whatever it might be, let's give them a reliable way to get into these job centers like downtown St. Louis or down to the south St. Louis or over to uh, either side of the river. What's it like when you're in Cortex and you hear the clang, clang, clang and you look over and you see people on the platform as the train pulls in and picks them up? It's been really cool seeing that. And so uh, I, I also saw somebody get off the Metrolink, uh, I think it was just yesterday, hop on a Lime scooter and scoot away. So I don't know where else they were going, but it was cool to see them use those two modes of transportation. New wave transportation oh, options. Yeah. Those Lime bikes, too. And the scooters are now all over the place. I think we'll have two companies, Lime and Bird, with those I, electric scooters. I rode a Lime scooter for the first time. I took it from Cortex over to the Grove. It was a lot of fun. Four bucks uh, to go back and forth, and it was easier than trying to find parking, and I didn't have to move my car when it was already parked at Cortex. It was the day that I drove my car. Well, thank you for joining us for this edition of Nothing Impossible. Travis, nice to have you back in the country. Yeah, it's good to be here, and maybe North-South Line is one of those things that we could say is not impossible. Ooh. We'll continue the conversation coming up next week on KMOX. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 